Hey, well, good morning, everybody. So good to uh, see you today. My name is Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here, and happy Black History Month to you. Um, we are going to be um, intentional uh, this month uh, as we bear responsibility for uh, making sure that the kingdom of God um, comes here uh, to earth as it is in heaven. And so I'm excited about this month. I'm actually excited about today and in God's providence where we are in, we're working through a, a book of the Bible called Acts, which is in the New Testament. It's the story of the early Christians uh, the early Jesus followers, right after the time of Christ, and it chronicles um, their journey um, as becoming um, the church, what we would even know today as the church of Jesus Christ. And so I'm, I'm really excited about today and where we are in God's providence with the timing of the text. Today's text, if the scriptures were a mountain range, today's text would be one of those few texts that is a peak of the entire story of the Bible. And what we are going to cover today and what we're going to discuss today is really understanding um, how pivotal it is that we recognize um, who we are and what God wants to do in and through us, even um, in uh, the place where we find ourselves right now. Well, before I dive in completely, um, um, I grew up as a Southern kid, a product of the South. Anybody else a product of the South, just out of curiosity? Yep, we've got a few, most of you, many of you. Um, I, I, I had the uh, privilege to grow up with my, my grandmother on my dad's side in the home with us. Um, kind of a long story, but um, my grandmother and grandfather were separated um, long before I was born, and then uh, she ended up uh, living with us, and so I grew up with my grandma. Um, we called her Nana, and uh, she lived with us in the house, and one of the most um, amazing things about her was that she was a fantastic cook. I mean, she could just whip up the best meals ever. And, and I, I grew up um, every evening um, after ball practice or after school or whatever, we would come home, and Nana uh, would have a meal prepared for us almost every single night of the week. Now, here's um, what's interesting about the way that Nana cooked about the way my, my nana learned to cook. She was actually grew up in a um, sharecropper's family, which um, down in the south uh, means that, that, that you lived on a farm and you worked the farm. You didn't own it, but you were allowed to work it. And she would tell stories of when she was 10 or 11 years old, uh, beginning to um, take over the kitchen as the rest of, I believe, upwards of like a dozen people in her family were out working. And she would take on the responsibility of cooking even at a young age. Well, here's, I'll, I'll cut to it. Um, she loved uh, to fry food. Does anybody in the house like fried food, just out of curiosity? I'm talking about if you could fry it, she fried it. I mean, we just like had like oil on reserve, you know, I mean, just like in the kitchen um, all day long. Now, um, I loved, I mean, literally almost every night it was fried food. Now, there's, fried food is great to taste, but it's actually not good for your health. Um, what would happen um, eventually is that my grandmother, Nana, and my dad both would have heart attacks at the age of 50, almost exactly at, at the same age. And uh, I am, um, uh, I'm 38 years old now, and I had this like revelation last year that has spun me into this like never-ending spiral of health. Um, but I had this realization that I'm not actually that far away from 50 years old, Right. And if I don't change something about my own life and my own habits, then I'm probably going to be in the exact same place that they were when I get to the age of 50. 
Now, here's what we recognize is that all of us, to some degree, are products of our family. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, you have taken on most likely the negative kind of attributes of your family of origin and uh, perhaps some of the positive attributes of your family of origin. Every single one of us um, are born out of a family, born out of a certain uh, circumstance, a context that is who we are. Now, if you are smart, you will be honest about where you have come from. You'll be honest about the generational patterns, the practices, um, whatever those things are, um, bad mindsets, substance abuse, lying, gossip, relational problems, whatever it is. If you're smart, you'll be honest about those circumstances and that context and then be intentional about making sure that you don't repeat those things. Can I get an amen in the house? I believe it was Winston Churchill who said, those who fail to learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. And so if we want to make sure we don't recreate and, and, and do the exact same things that were the negative attributes of our family, we'll be intentional about making sure we change those things. Now, the same is actually true corporately or organizationally of this family. Now, you may or may not recognize this or understand this, but you and I, as the Church of Jesus Christ, in our city, in our culture, in our country, we come from a family. We come from a family, and in the very same way, if you and I are not honest about where we come from, about the family problems, the family issues, the, the family things that were in our church family at large, if we're not honest about those things and how we should change, then we will repeat those very same things in our current day. We have to also be honest about where we've come from and who we are and where we want to be. Did you know that all progress in life happens by being clear about where you are, but also clear about where you want to be, and then clear on the steps to get there. That's how progress happens spiritually. That's how progress happens relationally. That's how progress happens financially. And so you must take an honest look, an honest assessment, be ruthlessly honest about where you are, where you've been, ruthlessly clear about where you want to be, and then make clear, direct steps about how to get between the two, how to bridge the two. If we today want to be the kind of church that I believe God wants us to be, we have to be very clear and honest about the church at large, the family that we come from. Now, I'm a church kid. Um, I was birthed from the bosom of the church, um, and I love the church. I believe that the church is the greatest organization in the world. I believe that it's the most powerful institution in the world. I believe that it is God's plan and God's design for how he wants his kingdom to come in the earth. And because I am so passionate about the church and the expectation that I have and what I believe God wants to do in and through us, it, it means that we've got to be really intentional about 
who we are and what we want to become. Now, in full transparency, I would um, love uh, to prepare sermons and to share sermons about um, how to make you feel warm and spiritually fuzzy on the inside for the week ahead. And sometimes I do that. Um, but in many, in many ways, I believe that I bear uniquely, and I can't speak for all Christian leaders in our society, but I bear a responsibility uh, to make sure that we are um, who God wants us to be and to do what he wants us um, to do. And in many ways, prophetically, speak into the church, not just our church, but the church at large, and help us in the process of reforming into who God wants us to be. Every generation of the church must reform who it was in order to become what it can be. Do you know that's how revival happens, by the way? Revival happens not because of circumstances outside the church. Revival happens because of circumstances inside the church. And every revival happens when the people of God actually repent and return to God and to what he wants them to be. And in that moment is when revival happens. It's not, revival isn't dependent on outside circumstances and we're not on the city, on the, on the culture, on, on politics, on this or that. Revival is dependent on us. And when we get in line with what it is that God wants us to do and become. And this is um, the reality for God's people and has been the reality for God's people for all of the history of God's people, that they would be honest about where they are and then get in line with what God wants them to be and become. With that being said, as we step into Black History Month and as we step into our text for today, um, my title for today is this, The Dangers of Division. The Dangers of Division. And I'd like to start with a quote from a, um, a reverend, a pastor, a minister, who wrote this uh, quote all the way back um, in the early 1900s. He's, I'll show a picture of, of him. He's the Reverend Francis J. Grimke. He was actually uh, a mixed ethnically, uh, but was considered an, an African-American. And he was a pastor, a minister, um, for six decades straight of the 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. And literally, just a couple weeks ago, I was reading a book where it was um, capturing some of his sermons for over 100 years ago, and was reading, and I felt like uh, what he said was extremely helpful and necessary, even 100 years later, um, for us as we think about uh, the text today and the scripture and where we are as a society. This is an excerpt from one of Grimke's sermons, and it says this. He says, It is important, it seems to me, not only in dealing with race prejudice, but in dealing with every other evil, that Christian men and women should understand that Christianity, get this, is not clay in the hands of the world's spirit to be molded by it, but is itself to be the molder of public sentiment and everything else. It isn't the meal, but the leaven put into the meal that is to leaven the whole lump. It is salt 
not salt that has lost its savor, but the salt of the earth that is intended to arrest corruption, to put an end to the forces that mean moral decay, that tend to break down the tissues of spiritual life and to denigrate into festering sores of race prejudice and all other broods of evil that grow out of it. The mission of the church, of Christian men and women, is to mold, not be molded by encircling influences of evil and to the shame of millions of white Christians in this land, the brother in black is still a social and religious outcast. As I look over this land of ours everywhere, I see churches, and these churches in full operation on weekdays and on the Sabbath. There seems to be no end to religious activities of one kind and another. Meetings by day and meetings by night, preaching services and prayer meetings and revival meetings and religious conventions, men's gatherings, great missionary meetings for the conversion of the world, for carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. And yet right here in America, in the midst of all this missionary activity, this religious zeal, this seeming devotion to Jesus Christ, race prejudice stalks on unhindered. Race prejudice flaunts itself everywhere, unrebuked as if the kingdom of Jesus Christ had nothing whatever to do with it, as if it were a thing entirely apart from it. The church is anxious to bring the world to Christ, overflowing with enthusiasm for the conversion of the heathen, and yet indifferent to battle this giant evil right here in Christian America. If we're going to make progress as a church um, in our context, becoming what God wants us to become, we've got to be honest about our past and where we have come from and the conditions that we have um, participated in, um, the, the, the places in which we have failed to um, honor the Lord, to stand for righteousness and holiness and justice, be aware of those things and be intentional about how to transform, reform, and conform into what God would want us to be. I love um, what the doctor, Dr. Eric Mason would say. He would say, the church has to return to its prophetic voice rather than its pathetic voice. And there have been times, and this is true of the church throughout all generations, so I'm not just picking on our recent church, but the church in many times and in many ways has had a pathetic voice into the reality of the sins and the moral decay of its day. To be very clear and to be very specific, and there are a thousand ills and there are a thousand evils that we must be mindful of and that we must recognize, but we must also recognize the evil and the ills of, as Dr. Grimke would say, race prejudice. Um, in many ways, and hear me clearly, the church not only tolerated the issues of race prejudice over generations, not only just tolerated, but actually exacerbated the issues. I would not go to try to assume why and all the details, but we, we must be honest about that reality and then honest about the, where we are right now. The reality is that we, we live in a, an America that is incredibly divided. It's very divided. Um, 
culturally, generationally, racially, politically, geographically. We're divided geographically. Like northern people don't like southern people and southern people don't like northern people. I mean, that's like, what in the world? I mean, how could, could, like, in every aspect of, like, of where there's any difference, we're, 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 we're divided. And it also um, invades, or you could say pervades, uh, pervades the church as well. I, I don't even know how many denominations there are in, in America, in, in, in the world. I don't know, hundreds, Pastor Chris? I don't know. I mean, I mean it's, it's like, it's, it, and, and hear, hear, me, hear me clearly, I don't think that was Jesus' plan and idea. Let me have a thousand different versions of the church, you know, so that everybody can be separate and divided and fit in their own camp and fit their own tribe and have their own theology and have their own da 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 da. I don't think that was I don't think that was that was the goal. Um, we need to more than ever demonstrate to the watching world that we can be a unified people, not a divided people. And this problem. Um, has persisted uh, for generations, for a couple millennia, and I'm getting through the text. Some of you are wondering, like, when is he going to get to the Bible? Um, it's necessary for me to kind of tee it up this way, um, but, but I want to demonstrate to you that even from the very early Christians in the early days, they had the same tendency, had the same possibility, but they actually overcame it. Uh, they actually overcame it, and it was challenging, and it was hard, and it was uncomfortable, and it was confusion, and, and there was a lot of division and separation, but they actually overcame it and were able to move forward in such a way where the church could be unified rather than um, divided. And so um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15 today, um, and uh, we'll take the entire chapter, and I'm going to be in Acts 15. This is often referred to as the Jerusalem Council. It's one of the few times in the book of Acts, the early story of the Christians, where an entire council was formed. Every church leader, essentially, of the early church came together and had to make a decision, and the decision was around division. Um, and, and they had to come together and they had to walk out of the room with a clear decision on what the church would become moving forward into the future. So here we go, Acts chapter 15. Um, Acts chapter 15, beginning in uh, verse 1, it says uh, this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, they were saying, unless you are circumcised, which was one of the customs of the law, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So if you remember at this point in the story, the church is moving forward all across the Greco-Roman world. Churches are being planted. Multitudes of people are coming to Christ. Thousands of people are being healed and changed and delivered. It's amazing. And then some people, um, a, a group of people, religious leaders, they, they come into Antioch. Antioch had really become the new center of the Christian movement. It was going to be the cradle of Christianity. And these leaders, they come in, and they don't like exactly what's going down with the Gentiles and these people that aren't like us. And they come in, and they say kind of secretly, they say, well, you think you're saved, but you actually have to do this if you want to be legit. And it says this in verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, like they had like a Christian fight. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles, the elders, about this question. So there's a huge fight that happens in, in, in Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas are like, what in the world are you talking about? Don't you understand? How are you saying this? And they're saying, no, 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 no. You got to do this and you got to do this. You got to do this. And Paul's saying, no, this is not right. And so they're saying, okay, well, take it to Jerusalem. 
So they leave, and they go all the way back to Jerusalem um, to have a conversation, to have a meeting. It says this in verse 4. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Paul and Barnabas are telling story after story after story about what God's been doing. Verse 5. But some believers, get this, who belong to the party of the Pharisees. This is the first no-no. There's already different parties. There's already party lines within the early church. Different parties are forming, different groups are forming, different sects are forming within the church. This is already a big no-no. And so some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Uh, Circumcision was uh, part of God's uh, law um, to his people, Israel, which was uh, those who were males who were born uh, eight days after they were born, they would be circumcised. Um, It was kind of a a spiritual symbol, obviously a physical reality, but a spiritual symbol that was supposed to um, demonstrate um, that uh, God is cutting away from the heart, the sin of of the heart. It was supposed to be a spiritual metaphor um, for God's people and be kind of a distinct marker for their people. And it's what the custom was for God's people to do. And, And now these Pharisees are saying, if you don't do what we did, if you don't follow these rules and these customs and these laws, you're not really an insider. You're not really saved. You don't actually really have what we have. So verse 6, it says this, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. They have a meeting, big board meeting. And after there had been much debate, they've been talking and going back and forth for hours and hours and hours, Peter stood up and he said to them, brothers, and Peter's member, he's one of the, he's one, the chief apostle, you could probably say, and he says, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles, those outside of Israel, those outside of the Jews, they should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's actually referring to Acts chapter 10 when he would go to Cornelius' home and he would share the good news with the Gentiles for the first time. Verse 8 would say, And God, who knows the heart, Peter says, he bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. The exact same thing. And he made No distinction, no different classes of Christians and believers and followers, no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Faith is what makes you saved, not any of the other stuff. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear anyways? But we believe, and here's the most powerful verse in the entire chapter. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter says, this is, this is how it happens. It doesn't happen by your law keeping, by being a good person, by going to church, by getting baptized, by putting money in the offering plate, by making sure that you're trying hard to do better than bad and make sure that God is approved of you and... Now he said the only way, the only way that it works is grace. It's grace. Grace means you can't earn it and you can't deserve it. It's something that's given, Peter says. It's, it's a gift. It's nothing that you can earn, which means it's no one's better than anybody else because it's all just based on grace. And then we see this in verse 13. And after they finished speaking, and because Paul and Barnabas, they spoke up for a moment, and then it says after they finished speaking, James... 
James, this is the uh, brother of Jesus, actually. He's one of the apostles, not the same James in uh, Acts chapter 12 that uh, was killed by Herod, but this is James, Jesus' brother. He's one of the, ch- the leaders um, in the Jerusalem church. James replied, he said, brothers, he speaks up. He says, listen to me. A Simeon, who he's referring to Peter, um, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, and with this the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. So he's now going to quote Amos. He's going to back, back to the Old Testament, and he's going to quote even what Amos says about this situation. And Amos says, the prophet, he says, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And this is the, prophet, uh, the prophecy of God that's coming. He says, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And get this, he says, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now, what's going to happen for the next few verses and throughout the end of the chapter is James is going to basically say, this is what I think we should do. We shouldn't require the Gentiles to perform any kind of the law, the customs, or anything related to the law. And Moses, we need to communicate to them um, that they are saved um, just like anyone else is saved, surely on grace um, alone. And so what happens is they put together a little bit of a team. Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch. They send a couple other Jerusalem church leaders back to Antioch. They have a letter. They get back to Antioch. They, they read um, the decision uh, to the church in Antioch, and everybody um, applauds and cheers and rejoices that an extra what it calls burden or restraint isn't laid on the Gentiles to perform some kind of part of the law in order to be saved. Now, here is why um, this is so important in the ultimate uh, story of the people of of God. Uh, The entire Bible is ultimately a story. Um, It's it's a narrative, and there's different kinds of threads and themes that you could um, acknowledge throughout the story of the Bible. But the story of the Bible is ultimately a story of God's people. It's a story of his people. It's the journey of his people, and it's God's process of the redemption of the world through a people group. And so if you remember all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures, um, mankind um, rebelled against God, decided that we would want to be God ourselves, revolted against God. We unfortunately lost relationship with God because of our wickedness, because of our sin, because of our defiance of God. So we were no longer in right relationship with God. But, but God decided to pursue to come after his creation, after mankind, after humanity, to come after them and to redeem them and to restore them back into right relationship with himself. The ultimate tragedy of their revolt against God was that they had broken relationship with God and broken relationship with one another. They no longer had right relationship with God and they no longer had right relationship with the world. And the story of the entire Bible is God's plan and purposes through a people in order to bring about his kingdom, which he essentially wanted to start, to bring about his kingdom here on um, the earth. God would do that first through a man named Abraham, and he would choose Abraham to be the father of a nation. That nation would be the nation of Israel. Now remember, God is creating a people from scratch, The only thing that they know or what's happening in the world, the only thing that they have categories for are the nations of the world. And so God, in the process of recreating his people, 
he gives them a certain um, practices, a certain ways of living. He gives them, you could call it, a new constitution. Uh, this is his law. And his law was the embodiment of what it meant to be in right relationship with him and right relationship with one another. And the law was to be what God's people would now practice that would be distinct, that would be unique to them, that would differentiate them from all of the foreign, ungodly nations of uh, the world. Now, what would unfortunately happen is that which was designed to make God's people distinct from the world, they would actually use to divide themselves from the world. What was meant to help them understand and demonstrate what it means to understand a loving God, to, to practice love to God and to practice love to one another, what was meant to make them unique and distinct would actually make them become unloving to the world and the nations that were around them. And they would use their distinctiveness, they would use their uniqueness as a way to divide themselves and demonize anyone that didn't fit in their mold and in their own category. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Anybody? Here's, here's what you have to recognize about the human heart and our own flesh, what the scripture would call the flesh, which is the degenerative part of our human existence. What you have to recognize is that um, your flesh, you call it your brain, is designed to help you survive. It's in the business of self-preservation. It exists to keep you safe and to make sure that you are okay. And in that process, the brain tells you, your flesh tells you that anything that is different from you is harmful to you. And so therefore, you should separate yourself and stay away from that which is different. This is the result of the fall. This is why birds of a feather flock together. It doesn't go the other way around, does it? There's a there's a reason why you and I like things that are similar, and we abhor things that are dissimilar. It's the product of the human heart. And you and I, just because we are Jesus followers, doesn't mean that we are exempt from that reality. The church in America, in many ways, fell into the same category in the same pattern that these first believers almost fell into, which was creating a different kind of class of person. That some people, because of something that is unique about them, because of their race, because of their whatever, are superior, are, are better, are whatever, uh, to other people that are different than them. Specifically, let's be clear about the white and the black population. And what the church has done over generations has actually condoned and been complicit in that pattern of thinking, uh, even written in the early documents of our country, is the reality that black people were three-fifths of a human. And the challenge is that the church just went right along with it. Uh, the, if you actually do studying, <laughs> Christians use the Bible to perpetuate that idea and that concept. There are two issues that I see from this text that if we're not careful, two dangers that if we're not careful about, 
we will exemplify um, as well as the people of God and the church of God. So let me, let me share those with you. Here's, here's the first one that I want to share, which is a danger. And this is the danger of gospel distortion. It's the danger of gospel distortion. In the theological world, there's this thing called orthodoxy, and there's this thing called orthopraxy. Um, orthodoxy is that which is right beliefs. Um, orthopraxy is that which is right behaviors. And the two are connected. And the first danger that we see here is the danger of gospel distortion, which was people were saying, religious leaders were saying, that you needed Jesus and the law in order to be truly saved, in order to truly have a relationship with God. You needed Jesus plus your morality, Jesus plus your own practices, Jesus plus being a good person or whatever you want to put in that category, Jesus plus something in order to have um, salvation. That is a, a gospel distortion. That's a gospel distortion. This is what grace is. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Um, G-R-A-C-E, not God's riches at your um, goodness, not God's riches at your performance, not God's riches at your religion, but God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. Um, grace is that you did not earn anything in order to receive salvation. Jesus, God didn't look upon the masses of the earth and see that you were a good person and then pick you to be on his team. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. That, that's, that's, that's not grace. It's simply God's riches, a relationship with God at, at, at Christ's um, expense. And so here's, here's how, how it works. Um, imagine um, imagine you, you get to heaven. Okay, imagine. I hope you get to heaven. Um, imagine we all get to heaven. And um, for, for, uh, for um, story's sake, uh, we're standing at the pearly gates. I don't know why they're pearly. Everybody says they're pearly. Um, and Peter's there. Peter's always standing at the pearly gates. But... Um, but let's, yes, just for context, you know, you're, 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 standing, at the, uh, the, you're standing at the pearly gates, and, uh, and, and Peter says, um, hey, why should, I, why should I let you in? Um, now, I actually think that it's, it's a good exercise to answer that question. I actually think it's a good exercise that whether it's Peter at the pearly gates or whether it's God himself, um, and he says, why should I let you in? What is your, what's your answer? Um, and all of us um, have a functional answer of, of something that we say. Here's the only answer, here's the only formula that works. It's this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the only formula that works. Here, here, here's why. Let's say you're standing there and you're like, well, well, God, you know, I mean, I just believe in you and you know, I tried to be a good person, you know, and went to church and um, I know that I had some, I know that I did some bad things, but you know what, I believed in you at the end of the day and I, and I tried to do some more good than my bad, tried to be a good person, and so I think that's why you should uh, let, let me in. Now, here's what happens. Let's say that scenario works. Let's say God's like, you know what, you know what, me Plus you, that's a great idea. Then you, then yeah, yeah. That's that's. Here, here's what would happen. Here's what happened. You'd be in heaven, and guess what you would do? You'd be like, well, hey, got myself in here. That's why only faith works. 
No one gets to heaven and is able to pat themselves on the back that they are the ones that got themselves there. The, the only way that it works is that if I, because of grace, and I did not deserve it, and, and I could not earn it, but in faith I trusted and believed in what Christ had done for me, then salvation comes. Because the person that thinks that they earned their own salvation will never actually be um, grateful to God for what he has actually done. It's like if my little girls thought that they bought our house or something. It's like, yeah, this is our house, Dad. Yeah, we worked for it. and we. I'm like, sit down. No, you didn't. I paid for this house. I've worked my tail off for this thing. You didn't deserve any of it. I did. It's getting a similar way. It's like, no, I did I didn't get to heaven. I didn't make heaven. I didn't, wasn't a good person to get myself there. No, it, God's like, I rescued you. You did not rescue you. I rescued you. That's how it works. Now, the problem is that there was a, a gospel distortion that was at stake. They were saying Jesus plus something else is, is what gets you into heaven is what, or salvation, whatever you want, however you want to say it. And, and Paul and these, these leaders had to clarify no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's not Jesus plus this and this and that. No, it's Jesus alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's, that's the only formula that actually works. Can I ask you a pastoral question this morning? Is there anything in your life that you're trying to add to Jesus for your meaning, significance, or value? What is it that is in your life right now that because of that thing you feel like, well, man, I'm, I'm really valuable because of that? I'm really significant because of this. All of us do this. Your, 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 your beauty, your, your self-image, your net worth, your GPA, your house, your career, um, whatever it is, we, we all do that. Those things are gospel distortions in your life. And, and when we understand the beauty of the gospel and what Christ has done for us, we recognize that all of our value, all of our significance, all of our meaning, it comes from him alone. So the first, first danger that was at play, which is a similar danger that we face, is the danger of gospel distortion. Because if they got this wrong, the gospel would be marred forever. And so the danger of gospel distortion. Here's the second one. The danger of church segregation. The danger of church segregation, here's, here's why I use that language, not because of what has happened in our country or our history, but because literally there was a possibility that if they did not get this right, there would be multiple churches. If, if Acts 15, if, Acts, if they do not get this right in Acts 15, there will be multiple churches. There's going to be a Jewish church. There's going to be a, you know, some kind of Hebrew Jewish kind of law-abiding church. And there's going to be a Gentile church. They're going to be separate. And this kind of church is going to have this kind of feeling about who they are and, and, and why they are the way that they are. And, and this church is going to be inferior and they're going to be different because they don't do this. And there's literally a, a danger of church segregation here. If they don't get this thing right, there's, there's going to be who knows how many. There's going to be different, different churches that are now going to um, qualify themselves and qualify their own legitimacy to their own identity rather than the gospel um, itself. And so it's the danger of church segregation. And this is where orthodoxy and orthopraxy uh, meet. Orthodoxy, if, if we get it right, 
if we get the beliefs right, if, if we get our beliefs right, it will allow us to have the right behaviors. But if there wasn't the right beliefs, it would manifest itself in wrong behaviors. And so we see that there was not only a, you could call it, I don't know, a theological, spiritual, vertical issue that was at stake, it was also a horizontal issue that was at stake, the way that the church would behave and the way that church would um, operate. And any failure in orthodoxy always leads to a failure in orthopraxy. And improper beliefs always produce improper behaviors. And here's what was happening. Some of these believers, some of these leaders in Jerusalem thought that because it was Jesus plus their law, custom, practices, their own really religious and ethnic identity, because of those things, then it was kind of producing that I'm a better than you kind of mentality. Could, could we use the word supremacy? There was a seed of supremacy that was in the early church. And if that seed was allowed to grow, it would ultimately sprout segregation in of the church. Seed of supremacy always sprouts segregation. And, and, and we have to recognize that that reality has been true of the American church for um, generations. And it's time that we acknowledge that our value and our identity and our significance comes not because of our ethnicity, our race, our culture, or whatever. It comes simply from, A, the Imago Day and who we are in God's image, and then as well, in Christ's sacrifice for us. There's only one sacrifice, and it's the sacrifice for all people. For, for all people. And there's not different lines. There's not different lines. There's not different tiers. There's not different classes. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And, 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 so, and so therefore, and you're like, Ethan, I, I can feel it. Oh, Ethan, that was so long ago. Ethan, we're, I mean, we're, we're over that, Ethan. I mean, come on, Pastor Ethan. I mean, you're reading quotes from a guy that was 100 years ago. Come on, man. If the seeds of supremacy are not pulled out, and if they are planted, it will produce segregation in the church. And we should, of, of all people, we should, of all people, be a, a unifying kind of people, a loving kind of people, a welcoming kind of people. Why? Because we demonstrate and we reflect the kingdom of God. I'll end with this. Um, where's Alex? You got me. Let's end with this. The, the, music, uh, the music makes it more spiritual, so... Well, um, <laughs> Um, this morning I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about this and, and our own, our own past and, you know, the, the, the aspects of our family kind of at large that are, you know, 
are in, but we, we really need to make sure that they are out. A, a few years ago, I remember I was um, eating a pack of nabs. Anybody ever had a pack of nabs before? Talk about Southern identity. Um, it doesn't matter how old you get. A pack of nabs never get old. They're like, you, you, could, be, you could be anywhere. You could be at a ball game. They say, hey, you want a pack of nabs? Yes, I'll have a pack of nabs every time, every time. Um, I remember, um, I mean, I grew up on nabs. I've probably eaten 30,000 nabs in my life. And um, um, super healthy. And uh, I, I remember eating this pack of nabs a few years ago, and the first, the first one was a little bit stale, and I'm like, that's not what a nab's supposed to take li- taste like. That tastes a little, and I, so I, I got to the second one, and I'm like, man, that's, but it was still, you know, pretty good. It's like good enough, you know, to not just throw the whole thing away. And I'm like, man, that's, that's a little bit different. That doesn't have the same, you know, authenticity that a pack of nabs, like, what is wrong with this pack of nabs? And so the third cracker, I get the third cracker in my mouth. I'm like, man, just something isn't quite right. And, and, and then I turn it upside down. There's actually a hole in the bottom. And a roach had, had climbed into the bottom of the pack of nabs and had literally eaten. <laughs> he said, I'm out. I had eaten about a half of the bottom of the, of the two nabs in there. And at, at that moment, I was like, no wonder this doesn't taste like the real thing. Something had, you got me? Something had gotten in. Something had breached the wall and had gotten in. Something that didn't belong in there and had defected the quality of what the nav was supposed to be. Church, we are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination The generation ahead of us will look back at us and see the error of our ways and will hopefully reform. We're not perfect. But it's important for us to do the same, that we look and we recognize what does not belong, uh, what should not coexist with the church, and that we have the moral fortitude uh, to say what doesn't belong. Not so that we can be better than other people, not so that we can be awesome or amazing, but just so that we can be what God wants us uh, to be. Because every time, every time the church lets something else in, every time the church doesn't do what God wants it to do, it always results in damage and destruction and division. And there are great dangers in division. And so may we be people that um, do our best to avoid the dangers of division in our families and our communities and in our church. And may we be, may we reform and be uh, what God wants us to be. If you agree with that, say amen. 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 Let's pray. God, today we are grateful for um, this reality that uh, there's the dangers of division. God, we're thankful that um, the church did not make the bad decision and accept a gospel distortion, and we're so glad that the church didn't adopt the church segregation. And God, help us to be what you want us to be, not a Jewish version of the church or a Gentile version of the church, not a white version of the church, not a black version of the church, not a rich version, not a poor version, not a uh, right-leaning version, not a left-leaning version, but let us be the church that you want us to be. Um, 
and to pursue that and to seek that as our bullseye uh, for what you would want us to be, and then also what you would want us to do um, in the world, because we know that our beliefs inform our behaviors. And so, God, we ask that you would um, do this in us. Um, in Christ's name, amen.